Thanks, Philip and Roseanne, for leading us in, in song. That's a great song for what we're going to look at this morning that we just sang. He is Lord of heaven, Lord of earth, Lord of all who live, Lord above the universe. I can't, I can't quite remember exactly how that went, but um, that's exactly what we're going to see about our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And uh, I want to just begin by, by opening to, the, to our text. We're in Matthew chapter 8, and we're going to look at verses 5 to 13. So go ahead and open your Bible, Matthew chapter 8, and we're going to look at verses 5 to 13. It says this, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Well, we're in a section of Matthew that focuses on Jesus's healing ministry and his authority. We've seen his authority and his preaching and his teaching. And and now we're going to look at his authority in his actions. We've seen his amazing words, and now Matthew uh, shows us his powerful works. Jesus' works confirm that he is who he said he was, that he uh, is the Messiah, that he is God in human flesh, that he is both God and man, and that he is the one who has come to save his people from their sins. And in the section that we're looking at, kind of from 8.1 to verse 17, there's three miracles that are presented here. And in all three of these first miracles that Matthew shows us, Jesus heals people who would have been considered outcasts of society. Last time in verses 1 to 4, we saw Jesus heal the leper. And in these verses that we're going to look at today, we're going to see Jesus heal on behalf of a Gentile. And next time we'll see Jesus heal a woman. And so these are three outcasts that Jesus is, and and Matthew shows us, Jesus is willing to accept and and draw the outcasts to himself. Now the story that we're looking at today is significant for a number of reasons. For one, the, the man who comes to Jesus was a centurion, and as a centurion, he would have been a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. And the fact that Jesus responded to a Gentile's request is significant. And actually, significantly as well, uh, a a Gentile or a Jew, according to Jewish custom, wasn't even allowed to enter a Gentile's home. They would have been made unclean. Now, that's not in the Old Testament law, but that was part of the Jewish tradition. And so when the man invites Jesus or when Jesus says, I will come, and the man says, uh, you know, he kind of rebuffs Jesus in a sense, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. And so Jesus shows his, his willingness to minister to Gentiles. That's significant. Another significant portion or aspect of this is that the, the man is praised for his great faith. Verse 10, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. This story shows us what will be made clear by the end of this gospel, that the good news of salvation is for the Gentiles as well as for the Jews, and that salvation is by faith. 
Another significant aspect of this story is that it shows us Jesus's authority. And that's really the the highlight of all of this section. We've seen his authority in his words. Now we see his authority in his deeds. But this, this section really highlights that authority. The centurion says, in effect, you don't need to come to my house. You have the authority to heal by your very words. Just give the word and my servant will be healed. And the reason that Jesus can heal is because of his authority as God. Now, finally, the emphasis on faith is significant as well. This story highlights the kind of faith that saves. The centurion's faith is the the kind of faith that saves, and it's what's going to allow him to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. A lack of faith is what's going to keep some people out of the kingdom. And so it's a healing story, but it's a healing story that shows us Jesus' authority And it shows us that salvation is by faith for both Jews and Gentiles. And so we could ask, what are we to expect from this message? Or or what is this text intended to teach us? What should it do for us today? As we look at God's word, what should it do for us today? And this is an opportunity to see Jesus for who he is as God in human flesh and especially to see his authority on display. We'll see what Jesus can do and what he can do with only a word. And we should also see an example of great faith. The centurion's faith results not only in the healing of his servant, but also in him being delivered from hell and given a seat at the table in the kingdom of heaven. We'll see a picture of true saving faith. And we'll see the kind of faith that we need, I think, in our day-to-day lives, probably now more than ever, the kind of faith that we need to survive in this world. And so this text will help us to see Jesus and what he can do, and it will help us to trust him with true faith. And I think we need to constantly remind ourselves of our Lord's power and ability, of his care for us. And again, especially in these days, the Lord is powerful, he is able, and he cares for us. And we need to believe him and trust him, even like the centurion did. And so as we look at this, we'll look at it under five headings that just kind of follow the story. And first we'll see the centurion's appeal in verses 5, 6, and 7. The centurion's appeal. Verse 5 says, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. Capernaum was in Galilee, and Galilee is where really everything that's happened in Jesus' adult life so far has happened. In Matthew 4 and verse 13, we learned that Jesus lived in Capernaum. Jesus entered Capernaum and a a centurion came to him. Now, a centurion was a Roman soldier. And he would have been commanding officer then of about about a hundred soldiers or so. And a centurion was a key part of the Roman army. They they directed and they gave orders and made decisions for the hundred or so soldiers that were under their command. Luke tells us in Luke 7.10, the parallel passage, that the centurion sent intermediaries to, to make the request because he didn't even feel worthy to go to Jesus himself. And Luke's version of the story, if, if we were to go there but we're not today, focuses really more on, on the man's humility and his support of the Jewish synagogue. Matthew's focus is more condensed on the centurion's faith. And, and Matthew kind of takes away some of the details of the story that he doesn't feel are necessary. And he uses the the principle that, that what a man says by intermediaries, he really says by himself. Now, Matthew, what he wants us to see is that this man is a Gentile and that by faith, he's included in God's salvation plan and that he will eat and drink with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Like most people in the region, the the centurion must have heard about Jesus' healing power. Remember, Matthew had said in in Matthew 4.23, and I'll just read that for you, he said that Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, 
proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And so the centurion knew something about Jesus' ability to heal. And he comes to Jesus with an appeal. The New American Standard Bible translated, he, he came imploring him. The Legacy Standard Bible says, it, pleading with him. In the, the ESV, we have appealing to him. And that word is a, a strong one. It means to, to urge strongly, to, to appeal to someone, to exhort them, to even encourage them. And in request, it, it's a, a strong request to request, to implore, to entreat. And it's no wonder that the man comes with such a, a strong plea because his servant was lying paralyzed, suffering terribly. In the parallel passage in Luke, Luke 7, 2, it says, Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And so the servant was at the point of death here, and he's suffering terribly, and he's a highly valued servant. Luke uses the word servant, uh, doulos, the uh, slave. Matthew uses a different word that means also slave, but, but sometimes it simply means a boy or a youth. And so it's possible that, that this was a, a, a young man or a homeborn slave. But however old the, the servant was, he could have been older, but however old he was, the, the centurion cares about this guy deeply. And he cares about him deeply, and so he came to Jesus with a strong request, and he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Now, this is an unusual sickness. The boy is, is lying down, and, and literally he's, he's thrown down, but the focus is on, on his inability. He's, he's down and he's paralyzed. He's down and he, he can't move. He's lame. He's unable to move. He's, he's paralyzed, but at the same time, he's feeling pain. And so he's paralyzed, but he's in pain. The ESV describes his pain as suffering terribly. The New American Bible, New American Standard Bible translates it, he's fearfully tormented. New King James says he's dreadfully tormented. The Net Bible has he's in terrible anguish. The Christian Standard Bible translates this terrible agony. And from all of these, we can see the, the pain that the, 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 the boy, the slave is feeling. That first word, the, the participle or the noun suffering means, means to, to torture, torment, or harass. And so he's, he's in torture, he's in torment, he's, he's harassed in pain. And, and the next word describes the torment as terrible or even as fearful. This is a fearful torment, a terrible torment. That word terrible means uh, an extreme negative point on the scale. And so you take a, a harassing, tormenting paralysis and you take that to the extreme and that's what the servant had. And so the centurion pled with Jesus, Lord, my servant is lying at home suffering terribly. And notice there that he calls Jesus Lord. And he points out the situation that's happening. Lord, as we've seen, can merely mean sir. But once again, it's likely that the centurion means more than just sir. The, later, we're going to see that he believes that Jesus has the authority to heal with only a word. And if you think about that, who has the authority to heal with only a word except for God? And so likely, Lord is an acknowledgement of Jesus' deity. Plus, when you think about it this way, the centurion is the leader of the army that is occupying the Jewish nation. And so if anyone was going to be the Lord, if anyone was going to be the superior, it would be the centurion. He's the leader of the army of the occupied nation. But he comes to Jesus and he says, Lord to him, and he seems to recognize that Jesus is God. 
Now the centurion here, he doesn't actually ask anything of the Lord. He just points out the situation, but it's implied that he would like Jesus to act. Now in verse 7, Jesus responds, and, and this respond could either be a statement or it could be a question. And so on the one hand, the ESV translates it, and he said to him, I will come and heal him. But another way we could understand this is that Jesus says, shall I come and heal him? But whether it's a question or a statement, the centurion responds in a, mark, in a remarkable way. And that's going to be number two in our outline. The centurion's acknowledgments in verses eight and nine. This is his response to Jesus's, I will come and heal him, or, or maybe even shall I come and heal him? And the centurion acknowledges two things. He makes two acknowledgments in response to Jesus. First, look at what he says in the first part of verse 8. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Again, the centurion calls Jesus Lord the second time here. And he says he's not worthy to have Jesus come under his roof. Not, not worthy to have him come to his house. He doesn't feel adequate. He's not good enough to have Jesus in his house. He, he, is, he is unworthy. And again, this would be somewhat surprising because the centurion is the leading military representative in the area. He's probably the highest ranking military officer for sure in Capernaum, but, but really almost in, in Palestine. And so he is, he is the, this high-ranking military representative. And, and Jesus, at least as he appears in human flesh, Jesus is a traveling rabbi of the occupied territory. The Romans had conquered Jesus' country, and the centurion is the lead conqueror, but he is unworthy to host Jesus because he knows that Jesus is much more than just a mere traveling rabbi. Now his acknowledgement of unworthiness uses the same word as John the Baptist used, and and you could turn back to Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11 and see John the Baptist use the same language. So Matthew 3.11 says this. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. And there's that same word, I am not worthy to carry. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now we know from studying this before, uh, John the Baptist is speaking about Jesus here. And he is not worthy to carry Jesus' sandals. Now John the Baptist was a prophet and according to Matthew 11 and verse 11, Jesus says this, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And so the the greatest man who arose, John the Baptist, was unworthy in his own mind to carry Jesus' sandals. Why? Because Jesus was the one who baptized or immersed with the Holy Spirit. He's the the one who determined people's eternal destiny. He gathered, John says, his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn in unquenchable fire. And we get the the picture here that Jesus is the one who determines people's eternal destiny. He's going to gather his people, his elect, his wheat, and he's going to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. And of course, he's not speaking about chaff, he's speaking about people and their eternal destiny. Now John again was the, the was a great man. He was the greatest of those born of women. The greatest person to have arisen according to Jesus and then the only exceptions to to that greatness then would have been Adam 
who was formed out of the dust of the ground. I think Adam would have been a great man that God had prepared as our representative. And the only other exception to the greatness of John the Baptist then would be Jesus, who although he was born of a woman, was also born from the Holy Spirit. Remember Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so John was a great man. He was the greatest prophet to arisen, maybe the greatest ever, except for maybe Adam and, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. But John was a great man, the greatest, but he was not worthy to carry Jesus' sandals. And the centurion, too, was a great man, but he was unworthy to have Jesus under his roof. And this is the, the proper view of our relationship to Christ. We are unworthy. We are unworthy to carry his sandals. We are unworthy to have him under our roof. We're unworthy to have him as our Savior. We're unworthy. Remember, he lives within us if we're true believers. We are unworthy to have him dwell within us. We're unworthy to serve him. We're unworthy to know him. We're unworthy to suffer for him. Now, the opposite of such a view would be a view that considers ourselves worthy, right? If, if, if we considered ourselves worthy to know him, worthy to serve him, worthy to have him, worthy to suffer for him. Another way to say the same thing would be to think that we deserve something from the Lord, right? Do we think that we deserve something from the Lord? Do you feel deserving of maybe better than, than what's going on in your life right now? Or do you feel unworthy to have what you have, especially when you consider that you have the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Now, the reason that we should feel unworthy is not necessarily because of who we are or our position, although we are sinners and we deserve to go to hell, right? That's what we deserve. We deserved hell and nothing more. But that's not necessarily the reason that we should consider ourselves unworthy. The reason we are unworthy is because of the greatness of who Jesus Christ is. And that's how John, the greatest man to have arisen, felt. It's, it's how the centurion felt, and it's, it should be our position as well. We are unworthy of his greatness. We are unworthy of his glory. And so let's keep following the text. This, the, that was the first acknowledgement that the, the centurion makes. He was unworthy. And then he said in verse 8, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it. The centurion believed or the, the centurion acknowledged that all Jesus would need to do was give a word and the servant would be healed. And that's remarkable because as far as we know, Jesus had never healed anyone at a distance before. Now the basis for the centurion's understanding of this whole thing was, was his own role as a man of authority. When he gave a command to one of his soldiers, they obeyed it. And they obeyed because the, the centurion's command was not merely the centurion's command. The whole authority of Rome rested in Caesar. And whatever Caesar said was law. But from Caesar down, there was a whole chain of command. And anyone in the chain was regarded as, as if Caesar himself had commanded it. And so if the tribune, who is the, the guy above the centurion, if the tribune gave a command, the centurion would regard it as though it had come from Caesar. And the same principle applied if the centurion gave an order to one of his soldiers. For a soldier to disobey his centurion was more than disobeying a centurion. It was really regarded as disobeying all of Rome with all of its army and all of its imperial majesty. And so the centurion understands that he has authority over his servants. And all he needs to do is give the word and it would be obeyed. It would be done. And he believes that in the same way, Jesus has authority. Look again at verse 
9, and, and notice how he puts it. He says, for I too am a man under authority. I too, I also, he says. And so what does the centurion believe about Jesus? He believes that Jesus has authority over sickness. He believes that all Jesus needs to do is decide that the terrible, tormenting sickness should be, should be healed. He should give the order and it will be done. And he believes that Jesus has this authority of himself. Now the fact that Jesus has this authority will be seen when he gives the word and the centurion's servant is immediately healed in verse 13. Jesus does have this authority. The centurion was right about Jesus. Now I want to come back to this acknowledgement and kind of apply this to ourselves. But first, let's see the Lord's response in verse 13. So the, the centurion just says, give the word. That's his second acknowledgement. All that needs to happen is you give the word and my servant will be healed. And then let's look number three. Let's see the Lord's amazement in verse 10. The Lord's amazement in verse 10. It says there, when, G- when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus marveled at the man's faith. And he called it such faith. But the, the New American Standard Bible translates it a little bit better. I think it's, it's such great faith. Such great faith. The, the word there means a high degree of quality. Faith as strong as this. And so it's a, a great faith. It's a high degree. It's a, this is a, a, a quality faith. And the Lord marvels at such a faith. Jesus hasn't seen this with, with anyone in Israel. Now, by the time we get to chapters 11 and 12 of, of this gospel, we'll see that Israel's unbelief and rejection of Jesus Christ, they didn't believe him, they rejected him. But even Jesus' disciples are called you of little faith. Remember this in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 30, and if you want, you could turn back and look at that. Jesus said there to his disciples, but if God so clothes the field of the grass, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Jesus calls his disciples there, you of little faith. We we tend to doubt, don't we, that that God is going to take care of us just like he takes care of grass. And so we're anxious and we're concerned. What's going to happen? What do we, what's, going to, what's the future hold? We don't know. And, and Jesus says, you, you're, you're, you're those of little faith when we think like that. Look at Matthew 8 and verse 26. We see this, this little faith among, amongst his disciples again. Matthew 8, 26. In that passage, Jesus calms the storm with a word. And the disciples are, are worried in verse 25, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And so little, fra- little faith is afraid. Little faith is anxious about what God can or will do. But, but great faith then is the opposite. Great faith is the opposite of fear and anxiety. Great faith trusts Christ and God, whatever is happening in the world. Great faith says Jesus is in control of the situation. Great faith says all you need, all you need to do, Lord, is just give the word. That's all that you need to do. You just give the word and it will be taken care of. Great faith is the kind of faith that takes the problems in our lives to Jesus with, with that kind of a certainty that all he has to do is say the word. Great faith says it doesn't panic like little faith and the disciples in Matthew eight twenty six. but great faith responds with certainty and with the certainty of the centurion, the Lord, just give the word and it will be done. Now this kind of faith isn't something that we need to, to work up or try to get. Faith doesn't come by, by trying to believe. 
You see, when, when the Lord presents something to me, I either believe that Jesus has the authority or I don't. I, we either trust him or we don't in that sense. Great faith just simply believes what Jesus is able to do and it brings our problems to him. Brothers and sisters, we need to believe in Jesus' authority over everything, over sickness, over disease, over nature, over government, and over all of the issues of life. And again, maybe today even more than ever, at least in our lives, maybe today more than ever. And when we think about it, a word from the Lord Jesus can change any situation. That's all it would take is a word from him and it would be done. A word from him can change any situation. And if he doesn't give the word, let's say we take a problem to him and he doesn't give the word, we can know and believe that his grace is sufficient for us to endure any problem, any difficulty, that he, that he will walk with us in it if he doesn't deliver us from it. And so that is the kind of great faith that we ought to have. And that's the kind of great faith that, that I want to have. And I've been reminding myself really all this week that it's just a word from the Lord and the government will change, the world will change, the sickness will change, the the situation will change. It's easy for him to do anything that he wants to do in this world. And if he's not doing it, if he's not changing it, then we can know that it's easy for him to strengthen us and to bring us through whatever we're going through in our lives. Now, little faith is when I, uh, two minutes after that, I go, oh boy, look what's going on now, right? But, but great faith would just kind of stay there and continue to, to, to trust in the Lord. But the Lord marveled at the centurion's faith. And so let's be a people who trust our Lord and believe his authority over all creation. Remember, this is Jesus's creation and he has authority for all that happens in this world. Whatever he says happens, right? Remember uh, uh, Psalm 115 verse 3, whatever the Lord does, whatever he pleases. And he does it in heaven and on earth. And so the Lord was amazed at the great faith of the centurion and he used it then as an opportunity to teach those who followed him. And let's look at that number four then. This is the Lord's announcement. And he makes an announcement based on the the amazing faith of the centurion. This is verse 11 and 12. Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into, into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, Jesus is speaking here of salvation. The centurion's great faith in in Jesus' authority is a a saving faith. And it's a faith that's going to allow him then to recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this must have made the centurion marvel in return. Salvation is by faith. Salvation comes when we trust, trust in Christ to deliver us from the Father's wrath. Salvation comes when we believe who Jesus Christ is, that he is God, and when we believe in him as our savior. We believe that he has the authority and the ability to cleanse us of our sins and present us to the Father as righteous. And believing, we, we come to Christ and we present ourselves to him and we trust ourselves to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is saving faith, the kind of faith that saves. We, we trust ourselves to the person of Christ and we, we just kind of leave ourselves in his hands to save us from God's wrath. Now what the Lord said in verse 10 was a rebuke to Israel and really to the Jews. Again, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. This was the, the kind of faith that should have been characteristic of Israel But Jesus hasn't found that kind of faith, such a great faith, with anyone in the whole country. Now he goes further and he he points out that many from the east and west are going to come. And he's speaking here about Gentiles. Gentiles are going to come from the east and west while many sons of the kingdom, many Israelites, will be thrown out. Now to recline at 
table is, is really to eat with the patriarchs. And that's how they ate in those days. They kind of reclined at the table. They, they laid down and had low tables. And so they'd kind of lay on, on their sides and, and eat. And the, and the idea here is that to recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with the patriarchs, that, that was, they were, those, those men were expected to have a place of honor in the, in the eschatological banquet, in the, in the end times. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were going to be blessed. And so to, to sit with them would be to participate with them in the blessings that they are going to have in the kingdom of heaven. And to see this kind of dinner theme, what, what theologians call the eschatological banquet, the end time banquet, I, I want you to turn back to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah 25, and we can, we can start reading there at verse 6. It says there, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. And note that there, this is for all peoples. This is including the Gentiles, which is what Jesus is including here. The, the Jews would have been surprised to see Gentiles included in this. But on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make all, for all peoples a, rich, uh, a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. Now you might say, what is this thing, this covering? Well, verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. And so on this mountain, there's going to be a swallowing up of death Forever, And this is going to include all the nations, all peoples, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And we can just stop, stop the reading there. We have a promise here of a feast. And when is this feast again? When is this feast when the Lord swallows up death Forever, And when he takes away the reproach of his people. And so there's going to be this feast. And this is in the kingdom of heaven. That's when this happens. It's in the kingdom of heaven. And when it says rich food with, with marrow, I kind of, I always picture a, a delicious steaks. So that's just kind of, you know, but you can pick whatever rich food with marrow you think would be good. And wine and rich food, and, and I think of that as dessert. And so dessert and steak in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And also with the Lord himself at this feast. This is what we are looking forward to on this day when, when, the, when the Lord swallows up death forever and he takes away the reproach of his people and he wipes every tear from our eyes, which we see in Revelation on that day, there's going to be this great feast, a celebration with the Lord and the righteous who have, have been saved by faith will be there. We see this feast again in Isaiah 65, and I, I want you to turn over to Isaiah uh, chapter 65 and look at verses 13 and 14. Isaiah 65, 13, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. My servants, behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. Now that's a, a warning to those who are lost and to those who resist the Lord. But for us who believe, this is a, a great promise. We shall eat, we shall drink, we shall rejoice, we shall sing for gladness of heart on that day in our resurrected bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. And even, even in the, the time of the kingdom, we're going to be eating and drinking and rejoicing with the Lord. Now, Jesus talks about this a few times in, in the book of Matthew and maybe once or twice in the book of Luke as well. But uh, Matthew 22, and we can kind of go back to Matthew if you want. Matthew 22, verse 4. In that parable there, the parable of the wedding feast. In Matthew 22, verse 4, the king says, See, I have prepared my dinner. 
My oxen my, and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But remember that parable, the, the people refuse to come. And so there's this invitation to, to everyone to come because there's this going to be this great feast. But the people refused to come. In Matthew 25, Jesus spoke of the feast as well in the parable of the ten virgins. And there was five were ready for the bridegroom's arrival and five were not. And Matthew 25 verse 10 says, And those who were ready went into him to the marriage feast. Note the word there, the marriage feast and the door was shut. And this marriage feast of the Lamb, this, this feast in the kingdom of heaven, is what we anticipate really week after week when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so if you look at Matthew uh, 26, 26, I kind of, whenever we do the Lord's Supper, I try to, to switch up the, the passages that I use. But whenever I use Matthew, we look at Matthew 26, 26, and I read these verses. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And that's typically where I stop reading. But look at verse 29, the very next verse. Jesus says there, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, there's this, this anticipation of the day when we will drink of the fruit of the vine with Jesus Christ in the Father's kingdom. Again, what we call the eschatological banquet. And John talks about this banquet in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, if you remember, that's the, the chapter where the Lord Jesus Christ returns to establish his kingdom and to conquer his enemies. That's the return of Christ. And just before Christ appears, a multitude of, of people cry out, a multitude cry out in Revelation nine nineteen verse 6. John says, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters, like, a, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And so there's this blessing for those who are now invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is going to happen when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Blessed are those who are invited. And it seems to mean that the angel means blessed are those who are going to be there. Because as we saw in Jesus' parables, everyone is invited. Many are invited, but few are willing to come. So blessed are those who, who are going to partake of those blessings. This feast represents really all of the blessings of dwelling with God and with his people forever. And all are invited, but only those who turn from sin and receive Christ by faith will be there. Many will not recline, Jesus says, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all, because they won't come by faith. The Jews, they thought that they would be welcomed because of their ethnicity. They they thought because they were Jews, they would enter the kingdom because they were Abraham's children. But Jesus said, in effect, without faith, they would be thrown out. In verse 12, Jesus talks about hell in some of the strongest language that we see anywhere in the Gospels. He calls it there, he calls it outer darkness. The 
the sons of the kingdom, really the, the Israelites, those who, to whom the kingdom should have belonged, but, but they're going to be cast out because of their, their faithless rejection of Christ, and there's going to be thrown out into outer darkness. Outer darkness. Outer means the, the furthest away or the, the extreme darkness. And the picture here is, is of God as light. God is light and, and hell is the absence of God's light. And hence it is darkness. Second Thessalonians, and actually I want you to turn with me to, I want you to look at Second Thessalonians as we think about this outer darkness and this, this weeping and gnashing of teeth. Look at Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians 1, kind of partway through verse 7, says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might." And so hell in one sense, this is speaking about hell as well. Hell in one sense is the Lord inflicting vengeance. And in another sense, it's away from the presence of the Lord. And so in one sense, it's the Lord inflicting vengeance on the people. In another sense, it's, it's away from the presence of the Lord. And so hell is, in a sense, the absence of the Lord's presence. And in scripture, the, the Lord's presence and glory is blessing. It's, it's considered a, a blessing and a, a delight to be in the Lord's presence and enjoy him. And hell then is the absence of that blessing. It's away from the presence of the Lord. It's away from the glory of his might. And it's away from all of his blessings. Because all true blessings are found in God and in his son, Jesus Christ. And so hell is the the, the separation from those blessings. And on the other hand, God's presence is in hell and it's his presence to afflict vengeance. And it's just vengeance on his enemies, on those who do not obey the gospel. As it says there in verse, in verse eight, on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. MacArthur in his commentary seems to take this outer darkness literally when he says this, he says, hell is a place both of darkness and of fire, a combination not found in our present world. Part of the supernatural quality of hell is that it will be a place of fire, pain, and torment that will continue for all eternity in total darkness. Now, I myself, I'm not sure. I don't know if we should take it literally. But if we take it metaphorical, if this is a, a metaphorical picture, then it's a, a picture of a horrible place. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is an expression that speaks of the miseries of hell. Matthew has weeping and gnashing of teeth, and it's literally the weeping and the gnashing just to, to, to really emphasize the, the, the horrible nature of this place. Matthew has it six times in his gospel, and all of them on the lips of our Lord Jesus. And the only escape of this place is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I would say to those who hear me, allow the, allow the good news of heaven and the bad news of hell to persuade you to come to Jesus Christ. Part of the weeping in hell will be that you miss the blessings of heaven because you refuse to come to Jesus Christ. Be one of the many from east and west to partake in the eschatological banquet with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And if by faith you will be there, if, if, if for you who are believers, if you will be there, what a day we have to look forward to. Blessing in God's presence, dining with the saints with righteousness forever. That is what we're looking forward to. And we look forward to it every time we participate in the Lord's Supper and every time we look forward to heaven and set our mind there. And so Jesus' announcement then was on heaven and hell and now he responds in verse 13 to the centurion's request. 
We call this the Lord's accomplishment in verse 13. The Lord's accomplishment. The centurion, and to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus told him to go, as you have believed, there means in the way that you believed. You believe that all that was required was a word. Well, that's what's going to be done for you. And so he says, let it be done for you as you have believed. And it was done that very moment. And the centurion went home and found his servant healed. It's a remarkable healing story that we've looked at. Again, uh, we've seen the centurion's appeal. He, he appeals to the Lord. Lord, my, my servant is, is suffering terribly. Lying paralyzed. The centurion's acknowledgement he wasn't worthy to have Christ come. And, and he acknowledges that all Jesus needs to do is give a word. We see the Lord's amazement at such great faith and trust in him. And his announcement about heaven and hell. And we've seen the Lord's accomplishment that he indeed does have the authority to heal. All he has to do is just say the word. And, 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 and really anything in this universe will be done. And I want to close then just by reminding you that this same Jesus who healed at a distance 2,000 years ago, that he is here today, that he is alive, he is risen from the dead. And he is with us if we are his true people. If we have trusted in Jesus Christ, he is with us and he dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. And this same Jesus who rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father is in heaven right now interceding for us. And he says this in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now don't miss that, all authority. We've seen his authority in healing. Now he says, all authority in heaven and on the earth that's been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This one who has all authority in heaven and earth, he's told us what to do. And he is with us until the end of the age. And if he doesn't give a word to deliver us from some difficulty, then we can know that it is part of his good plan for us to carry us through that and to walk with us through it even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this amazing story of what our Lord Jesus Christ can do. And we pray that you would help us to just take you at your word and to acknowledge that you do, Lord Jesus, you have all authority. That nothing is difficult for you. And at a word, you can change any situation. We thank you for your power Father, help us to trust you. Jesus, help us to to believe you in this way. Help us to have a great faith that honors you and takes you at your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.